Welcome to the Bermagui Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here you'll find the recording of messages from our weekly gatherings. We pray you'll be challenged and encouraged by today's message. What I wanted to start with was a bit of a story from my life. And that I'm one of these people that I have a habit and it's something that even when I try, it's just one of those things, just my, my makeup, I guess my, my physicality that... Uh, if I don't have to stay awake while I'm driving, if I'm a passenger, um, I'm pretty quick to fall asleep. Um, yeah, I can be back seat, front seat, whatever. But if I'm if I'm not the one driving, if I'm driving, I'm fine. I can go for quite a long time, so several hours without needing a break and that sort of thing. If I'm feeling good. But um, the moment I'm in that passenger seat, sadly, her prudence, yeah, she she's good. She stays awake and talks to me and keeps me going if I'm driving. But um, if we swap, um, I don't do that very well for her. I drift off pretty quickly and I'm asleep. And the fact is, this is something that stems right back to, to when I was a child. I was that kid that would fall asleep on the school bus. And um, a number of times, my mum had to come and pick me up from the depot because um, I'd miss my stop. And, you know, bus driver would pull into the depot at the end of the day and go, oh, hang on, there's one here. And, um, yeah, uh, I, was, I was a bit of a regular like that. And in my teen years, it wasn't a whole, whole, whole lot better. Um, the number of times I'd made to rib me, so hey, it's your stop, and I'll be I'll be asleep on the bus. Um, my friends always marvelled that you know on the noisy bus trips for like a school camp or a sporting trip in the high school, I'd zone out and I'd be gone for like the eight-hour trip to Sydney or whatever it was, yeah, from Coffs Harbour. And um, it's something I've always done well, but yeah, fatigue has always been something I've had to battle with, um, and I think that's just one of the ramifications of it. And it is something that's actually followed me into adult life. And I remember one of the first jobs I had in Cooma was, um, was as a landscape gardener. And uh, based in Cooma, but quite often would be heading up to, to Berrydale or Gindamine for a job. And, um, and more often than not, I was the passenger because the, my, my co-worker, he had the truck license and he drove the, the, the tipper truck that we're in and things like that. And um, so I became a bit of a rolling joke because the amount of times that I would fall asleep in the truck next to him um you know quite often on the way home after 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 a busy day working hard um they they, they could sort of forgive me for that but sometimes even in the morning on the way to the job i would drift off in the passenger seat and so um yeah i i became one of those rolling jokes of you know what are you doing sleeping on the job (laughs) yeah i don't think i'd be a very good co-pilot if i was flying But the fact is, uh, I mustn't be the only one because um, the fact is in our society, we've coined that phrase, haven't we? You know, sleeping on the job. And we use it for, you know, for anyone that you know, drops their attention in something or you know, like, like, you know, not paying attention to something that they should be doing. You know, if a soccer goalie lets through an easy goal, you know, he, he gets called you know, that he was sleeping on the job. And you know, even in the business world, the fact is you know, if people you know, are late for a deadline or miss a a good opportunity they're described to someone or you know, they're sleeping on the job and they, 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 they miss their chance. And the fact is we can probably all relate to this notion a little bit, can't we? Maybe, maybe not physically, you know, like, like me, but, um, but you know, we've all had those moments where we've, especially in hindsight, we look back and go, oh, I really did just miss an opportunity there, didn't I? I wasn't awake at the wheel enough to, to realise, oh, that was a, a good opportunity to do something or... Um, or to, to, to 
to be at, at, at that right place at the right time. And it does cause a sense of regret, this notion of realising that you've missed something, doesn't it? I'm sure you can all relate, you know, that, that, that missed opportunity, and, and particularly in hindsight, we can always look back and go, oh, I wish I was, you know, just more on the ball when, when that happened. I know for me, um, my family, we weren't, we weren't one of those families that talked money lots. We didn't talk about investing and, and you know, setting yourself up well. Um, it was just one of those conversations I don't recall having with my parents much at all. And um, so moving out of home as a, as a young man, moving to Cooma, getting my first job and starting to earn a full-time wage, the concept of actually going, hang on, I should really start to save a bit of this and I could probably buy a house pretty soon, just wasn't really there. And in hindsight, I look back, when I first moved to Cooma, you know, the, the sort of simple little snowy homes that were available then, they were going for like 40 grand. And that was back in 2000. And you know, I, was, I was on half decent money and I was flatting with other mates and we're all chipping in to pay rent. And if I had my head together, I would have just gone, well, flip. All I have to do is get a bit of a deposit, buy a place, my mates can move in with me. That would help pay me, pay my, my repayments. And I would have had a house by the, you know, the age of whatever. I wasn't geared that way. <clears throat> and it's only in hindsight, I look back and I go, oh, wow, yeah. I, I probably could have got into the property market a lot earlier, but um, with that sort of um, awareness. But in that sense, in that moment, I was asleep, uh, I was, I was asleep at the job. <clears throat> and the fact is, yeah, we're all capable of make, making mistakes, aren't we? We're all capable of missing opportunities, losing focus, losing passion, getting distracted, or simply quitting. And, you know, in any of these moments, we could be labelled as someone that's, you know, that's, that's asleep at the wheel or, you know, sleeping on the job. <clears throat> so after all that, you're probably going, all right, Chris, what are you getting at? What's the point here? I called the sermon today and put a little slideshow together. Yeah. Don't get caught sleeping on the job. Um, I, if that was a real photo, I'm guessing that guy would be second-guessing his presentation. And, um, um, and sadly, it's probably one of the greatest fears of most pastors. Um, um, but I called it, don't get caught. Don't get caught sleeping on the job. Um, so no sleeping today. Um, but what I want to highlight is that, you know, we've got to make sure that we don't make habits or trends in our lives that can lead to dire consequences. I'm not talking about an individual <coughs> mistake. You know, we all, we all make mistakes. I get that. And that, I'm not saying we have to be in this perfection in that sense. But what I'm talking about is patterns that we set in our lives. Patterns in the way we respond to each other. Patterns in the way we respond to God that actually shape our future. So to sort of paint a bit of a word picture around what I'm trying to get at is you know, fruitfulness. In scripture and, and, and in, in our Christian teaching, we talk a lot about the fruitfulness, that, that we, we look for the fruits in people's lives. So someone might say they're a Christian, but we go, okay, but what are the fruits of your life? How are you, how are you proving that? How are you showing that in your life? But we can't base that on a one-off, can we? Because it'd be like going out to an apple tree. You know, walking down the road, you see this apple tree, you see this beautiful, bright red apple there. You pick it and you eat it and it's delicious. You're going, wow. You know, from that one piece of fruit, you might think that's a really healthy, beautiful apple tree. But what we don't know is that in reality, all the other fruit actually dropped off because of disease and, and, and grub maybe. 
that that tree was actually in the process of dying. That was just the last of a good piece of fruit. We can't base our judgments off a, a single event. A better way to judge the apple tree would be to observe its full cycle. You know, it's flowering, it's fruiting, it's harvesting, it's pruning cycles. Is it actually being maintained and looked after? And to see whether that pattern is healthy or unhealthy. The truest sign of a tree that bears good fruit is that full assessment, is that pattern of its life. And I think we need to see that in ourselves as well, is that when we're looking at the fruits of our lives and looking at the fruits of others' lives, you know, let's not just pick that one red apple. Let's look at the pattern. How are they, how are they actually building life? You know, a verse that came to mind when I was sort of thinking that, that word picture through is that you know, in John 15 too, talking about a, a, a great vine, but same, same principle. In John 15 too, he says, he cuts off every branch that doesn't produce fruit and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they'll produce even more. You know, God's wanting to work at us and, and you know, with our fruiting, he wants to actually go, okay, that's great, but let's prune a bit more off. Let's, let's get the right shape. Let's get the right growth happening so you produce even more. That's the desire of God. So our faith walk is not just about doing you know, that, that right thing once. It's not just about saying that salvation prayer and say, oh yeah, I've done that, tick that box, all good. It's about setting patterns in our lives that reflect the transformation of our hearts. It's setting patterns that lead to more and more righteousness, that lead to more and more God-likeness, Christ-likeness in our lives. If we do just rely on individual events, you know, that fact that we prayed that sinner's prayer or we did that, you know, that good deed for that person. But not work at getting those patterns in our lives. We might actually fall asleep on the job. So the person I want to talk about today is actually Eli the priest. And he's a character that probably doesn't actually get the spotlight very often because it's more Samuel's story that they focus on. <clears throat> In the start of First Samuel, if you do have your Bibles, I encourage you to open, open, open up the First Samuel chapters one to three. We'll sort of be going back and forth a little bit over that. So, for those those of us that are aware of you know, Samuel Samuel's journey, you know, he was in a sense the last of the the judges, the last of the the people that God was using to lead Israel before the monarchy came in, before the king stepped in. And his journey was is quite a unique one. So his mother, Hannah, she was married to a man called... Where have I got in my notes here? I mean, two Samuel, not, not one Samuel. Elkanah. So it was Elkanah and Hannah. Sorry, two Samuel. No, one, one Samuel, sorry. One Samuel chapter one. So right, right at the start of the chapter. Sorry, did I say two Samuel? Yeah. Yeah, first Samuel. So first, first book of Samuel in the first chapter. And we'll read this story of Hannah, who, you know, happily married, but barren. She wasn't bearing any kids. And... Elkanah had two wives and the other wife was bearing children. So she would rib Hannah and so say, yeah, you know, 
look, you, uh, you, you're not being a very good wife. You're not bearing your, your husband any kids. And yeah, year after year, they'd go and give their sacrifice at the temple at that assigned time that they would go and do a, a, a festival time. And um, at this point, there wasn't actually a temple. So even though it might say the temple or tabernacle in your Bible, it's talking about that, the, the tabernacle tent that they were using. And, um, and they would go offer these sacrifices and you know, year after year, she would plead and say, all right, God, you know, I want to have children. And it describes this particular one <clears throat> where she's there and she goes after the fact, you know, everyone's sort of left to, to have the celebrations and whatever. And she's back at the temple, back at the tabernacle, and she's just praying, pouring her heart out to God. And Eli's there as the, as the senior priest. And he sees her. And he, he actually makes a judgment on her, a bit like what I said about that stone. You know, he didn't, didn't actually sort of dig in and, and, and look at himself for one. And he made a judgment on her. So I said, oh, she must be drunk. She's, she's just there babbling. But when, 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 when he actually um, confronts her about it, she goes, no, sir, I'm just pleading my heart out before God because I really want this child. And he sort of backpedals a bit and he goes, oh, you know, you know good on you. And, you know, I, I do pray and you know, believe that God will answer your prayers. And God does. But in that prayer, Hannah sort of said, you know, if you give me a child, I'll honor you and give that child back to you. And so after the child is, is fully weaned and you know, ready to sort of start to look after himself as a, a, as a young man, she brings him back to the temple and gives him to Eli to be raised in the temple. <clears throat> Which leads to this story that we're possibly quite familiar with where Samuel hears the voice of God. And it's quite a, quite, a, you know, quite a clever little story and quite a cool little word picture where you see Samuel sleeping in the in. In, in, in the temple area, it was near, the, near the, the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he hears this voice, Samuel. And he thinks it's Eli, the priest, calling him. So he gets up, goes to Eli. Oh, Eli, I'm here. What do you want? Eli goes, I was asleep. What are you doing? And he goes, go back to bed. Samuel goes back, lies down. Again, he hears Samuel. And this happens three times. And eventually Eli realizes, oh, hang on. It's not me calling out. It must be God. And he coaches Samuel and says, hey, you know, I believe it's the voice of God. So next time you hear that voice, you say, you know, your servant's listening. And he does that and he receives this word of God, which is quite drastic. But, you know, the spotlight, as I said, is often shone on Samuel and going, wow, you know, what a, what a start to his ministry. And, you know, this, 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 um, this role that God uses him to actually bring in the monarchy you know, through Saul and then through David. But Eli, this priest Eli, I started to sort of dwell on it a little bit and I went, well, why wasn't God speaking to Eli? Why was he, in a sense, sleeping on the job? Why didn't he hear the voice of God? And so to do that, we actually got to backpedal a little bit. So verse 3 of chapter 1. It says, Each year Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. And the priests of the Lord at that time were the two sons of Eli, Hophini and Phinehas. So Eli was, in a sense, you would say the, the senior priest, but other, the other priest of the, of the tabernacle of the time was his two sons. <clears throat> and so Eli was considered judge over all Israel at that time. And he was you know, 
the last of the judges before this monarch was brought in by, by Samuel anointing Saul and then anointing David. <clears throat> and so he was in, in the line of the Levites and that was just the family role, you could say. It was the family job of looking after the tabernacle and, and, and performing these, these priestly duties. And so this had been many generations on since the tabernacle had been built originally with, with Moses. They'd brought it with them and they'd set them up in, in, the, in, the, in the promised land. And they'd gone through the, the ups and downs of the judges, if you remember the judges' stories. And so Eli's just the, an, another one along that line. And so for whatever reason, he actually starts to set patterns. Whether he, whether he just took, took it for granted, whether he just went, oh, well, this is the family thing, this is what we do, and I'll just get onto it and do it. And he set patterns that not only that he had in his own life, but his sons took on and exemplified. And so we actually read, yeah, if you go to chapter 2, verse 12, it starts to speak about what these sons were up to. And what they're up to wasn't so good. So chapter 12 says, Yeah, now the sons of Eli were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord or for their duties as priests. That's yeah, a pretty, pretty damning little statement right there. And it goes on to describe this, this, this pattern that they set. It's, it's not just a one-off. It's something that they continue to do time and time again, where they would actually go and basically steal from the offering. So what people would do, like according to the Levitical law, that they would bring their, 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 their sheep or their calf, they'd sacrifice it, and they wouldn't actually burn the whole animal. They would burn a portion of it, it was usually the fat, and that was the, the sacrifice, and the rest of the animal was actually given to the Levites as their portion because they, they weren't farmers, there weren't any income. Their job was to look after the house of God. And so the way that they survived in that sense was the, the portion that they took from this, this thing. But what these two sons were doing was that even before the meal was prepared, it describes this idea that they would send a servant to stick this big fork in and take the choice meat. So they're always getting the top picks. And it goes one step further. It says even while the offering was being ready to be burnt, they would take a portion. And they talk about, you know, the, the servant was instructed, you know, take it no matter what. So even if the person making the sacrifice is like, yeah, yeah, you can, you, can, you can take your portion, but let me make my sacrifice. But they were wanting the fat and they were wanting the, the raw meat so they could do a roast instead of boiling it up because that was the, 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 the process that they would do. And so they were taking from people that were generally trying to connect with God through sacrifice and, and make, make, making amends. And they're taking away that opportunity. And they're taking it for their own greed and their own, their own desires. And as I said, it wasn't just a one-off. It was something that they'd made a pattern of. It was something that was just continually happening. So they're denying the person making the, the sacrifice and ripping them off, but they're also ripping off the other temple servants who survived on those portions as well. So it goes on in verse 17. It says, So the sins of these young men were very serious in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offering with contempt. And that's a serious charge. And especially when we reflect on, you know, what would that look like in the, in the New Testament setting? You know, if we were to hold contempt to the Lord's sacrifice, we're, we're talking about holding contempt to Jesus. We're talking about disrespecting and, and, and disregarding <clears throat> who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That word contempt in the scripture is talking about you know, dishonor, 
to despise or disrespect or to be abhorred towards this act of obedience. So what these guys were doing, they were treating something that was holy, something that was sacred, as something purely common and privileged. You know, they had this right to go in there and just take what they wanted. So there was a big focus on the sons, but you go, well, what does that mean about Eli? Why, why is he, later on we find, he's condemned along with his sons. So what's Eli's problem? So in 22, verse 22, if you're sort of, sort of following through, it says, now Eli was very old. And he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. And here, for instance, so another thing that was added to the list is that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. So not only were they stealing from the sacrifice and and making a mess there, but they're actually being completely immoral. And the following verses describe this reprimand that that Eli gives. He, He actually does confront his sons and say, come on, what you're doing is wrong. You should, you should stop. But it stops there. He doesn't do it, go any further. He doesn't take it any further. We don't know for sure, but maybe he thought that was enough. Maybe he thought, well, okay, I've done my job. Tick that box. I've done my one red apple and good deed. But was that enough? Was that, was that just an act of obedience? Or was he actually walking a pattern of obedience? So God sends along someone to deliver a word of judgment on Eli and his sons. So verse 29, verses prior to it and a little bit after it, there's basically this man of God. It doesn't say who, so just a a nameless prophet, you could say. Was instructed by God, hey, you've got to confront Eli and and give this judgment. That's a pretty full-on judgment. It basically says, look, your your family line is going to be done with. You're no longer going to be a family that serves in the house of God. Um, so not only Eli himself, but his sons and, and any other relatives, he says they're going to be disconnected from, from this duty. And it says this in verse 29. So this is addressed to Eli. Why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings? Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become far from the best offerings of my people Israel. So I think that's where we start to see Eli's problem here, is that he'd set patterns in his life, patterns of not bringing his sons into line and pattern as priests, lead priests, of not bringing his priests into line. And the fact is, is that he actually preferred them over preferring his obedience to God. He'd set a pattern in place. It wasn't just a one-off event. There's something that was just continued to be there, this pattern that just sort of lingered and got worse and got worse and got worse. So we see here, you know, God's judgment on Eli is not, not just for not correcting his sons, but correcting them as priests. He was actually enabling them and reaping the benefits of their obedience. It speaks about that he was actually obese, that he was overfed. So not only was he in a sense, almost turning a blind eye to what his sons were doing, he was actually taking part of it and eating those choice meats. He neglected to set patterns of righteousness in his family. And now his role and his family line were having to face these consequences. He was sleeping on the job. So now we come back to Samuel and what God told him. 
So as I said, there's that story where he hears the voice of God and goes back and forth and Eli realizes, well, it must be God speaking to him. And this is what God says to, to Samuel. This is in chapter 3, verses 11 and 14. He says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I'm going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I've warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and they have, they have, they have, and he, Eli, hasn't disciplined them. So I vow that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offering. And Eli knew in that moment, you know, when he realized, hey, God's talking to Samuel, that he'd been passed over, you could say. That should have been his role. And so the following morning, he goes to Samuel and says, hey, just give it to me. Tell me everything that God said. Don't hold anything back. And so in verse 18, it says, or verse 17, prior verse, it sort of says, yeah, Samuel told him exactly what God said. And this is Samuel's response, uh, Eli's response. So verse 18, so Samuel told Eli everything and he, he didn't hold anything back. It is the Lord's will, Eli replied. Let him do what he thinks best. In that moment, Eli realized that he'd missed the boat. He'd fallen asleep at the wheel. He'd, he was sleeping on the job. And if you read the following verses after that, you realize, yep, the part, part of the, the judgment was that he would see his, those two sons killed on the same day, and they were in a battle. And at the same time, that was when the uh, Ark of the Covenant got taken by the Philistines. So what's our takeaway from this? Why, why am I highlighting, I guess, the, the brokenness of Eli and everything that he went through? What's our takeaway? Thankfully and hopefully, none of us are at that point that Eli got to. Hopefully our takeaway is that we can look at our lives with a new perspective and have a look at the patterns that we're setting. And not just patterns in, you know, in this case, it was, it was his parenting patterns and, his, and his, his leadership patterns. But we all set patterns in our lives, don't we? But let's have a look at those patterns. Are they patterns leading to health? Or are they patterns that are leading to consequences? To destruction? Have a good candid look at those. And so let's go, oh yeah, yeah what, what I'm doing, yeah, it's not really a big deal. But if those patterns continue, if those patterns keep rolling on, what do they lead to? What are the end results? Do the patterns in your life lead to righteousness and closeness to God? Or are they heading in another direction? And so the challenge is, you know, if you look at those patterns, if you look at those, those things in your life and go, oh, it's not great. Maybe I need to shift things here. Do it. The fact is, Eli let it go for too, too long, and eventually that consequence hit him. But God, there could have been a different story there, couldn't there? There could have been a point there where he corrected his sons, or literally kicked them out of the priesthood and said, no, what you're doing is wrong. We can change these patterns. Don't let them get you caught sleeping on the job. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for just the, the realities and the the candidness, Lord God, of your word. That it doesn't hold anything back. It, it tells the, the good with the bad, Lord God. But we can learn from those things, Lord God. We can learn from, Lord God, the, the judgment, the, the, the consequences that Eli had to face. That we don't set patterns in our own life, Lord God, that are going to, going to be destructive. That we don't continue, Lord God, in ways, Lord God, that we know just aren't leading, Lord God, towards you. 
Lord, let us be a people, Lord God, that surrender ourselves to you every day, that we continually just go, God, prune me, shape me, mold me. Lead me along your paths. Lead me along your ways, Lord God. And yeah, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to fall off the boat every now and again. But I pray, Lord God, that we set patterns, that we set habits in our life, Lord God, that lead us just closer to you. And I pray, Lord God, that we can be challenged, Lord God, if there's something in our lives, if there is something that we consider maybe just small, but maybe it's leading and working its way as a pattern in our lives that are leading us down paths that we don't need to go down. Correct us, Lord God. Bring that conviction, Lord God, of the Holy Spirit into our lives. And a conviction, Lord God, that doesn't make us hide from you, Lord God, but makes us run to you. A conviction that makes us turn our face towards you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all the life that it does bring to us. And we thank you that you are a forgiving, loving, gracious God. In Jesus' name, amen.